This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous edition of Jews You Should Know. This week featuring Rabbi Yehoshua Pfeffer, a fascinating individual. I first met Yehoshua Pfeffer several years ago at a Tikva fund training program that I participated in, a week-long seminar in New York, which was really, really interesting. And uh, then more recently, he and I spent a couple of days together in Spain as part of the Olami Global Forum that I've referenced in my introduction to other episodes and uh, reconnected there a little bit and finally made up to do this interview, which has been quite a long time in the making. Rabbi Pfeffer has so much to say about so many issues in Israeli society, law, politics, uh, the intersection between various cultures in Israel, and much more. He is a rabbi, a community rabbi, a Dayan, a rabbinical court judge, the founder and editor of a journal of academic thought, an adjunct professor uh, of law at the Hebrew University, where he himself studied law. He was also uh, an intern at the Israeli Supreme Court. And generally speaking, is a real bridge builder within Israeli society and somewhat of an internal builder within Haredi society in Israel. So it's really a treat to speak with him on a whole panoply of issues. Uh, he has very, very intelligent and incisive things to say about lots and lots of different topics, and I at least enjoyed it very, very much. Once again, a reminder to subscribe wherever you are listening, whether that's on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast, wherever it may be, and to please spread the word as well as give us a rating and comments on these various platforms. And now to Jerusalem for our conversation with Rabbi Yehoshua Pfeffer. We are here with Rabbi Yehoshua Pfeffer, a professor, attorney, author, journal founder, among many other roles that we'll discover shortly. How are you, Rabbi Pfeffer? Baruch Hashem, very well. Uh, all, all good. Community rabbi here in Ramat in Jerusalem. I like to put my rabbinic credentials before the other ones, but they're all good. Beautiful. So, uh, the rabbi and I just uh, came back from spending some time together in Spain. Those listening uh, to the podcast know from some other episodes that I spent the week there uh, with 700 of my closest friends. And uh, Rabbi Pfeffer was the rabbi in residence coming to make sure everything there was super kosher. So we appreciate that. And uh, I've gotten to know the rabbi uh, from a number of different platforms. And we're going to talk about some of those today. So tell us a little bit about where you are from, where you grew up. Okay, my, my history briefly is that I grew up in London. I was there till the end of high school. At the age of 17, I finished high school in London and I came to Israel. Mainly I learned a little bit in Gated, but mainly I spent my yeshiva years in Eretz Israel, in Israel. Uh, predominantly in, in May yeshiva, I learned in a place called Beit Israel, which is mainly for Americans, and then later in a yeshiva called May, which is a very renowned and very large and very impressive yeshiva. I spent five years 
under the tutelage of Rav Asha Ariely, not just in understanding, but also in terms of character refinement and so on. Uh, got married in Israel, spent the next 10 or 15 years learning full-time, uh, mainly Chosha Mishpat, mainly Dayanis. I became uh, a Dayan on a, a base in Yerushalayim under uh, Rav Asha Weiss, Shlita. And for uh, those unfamiliar, just explain what Dayanis entails. Dayanis is, is basically a rabbinical court. It's being a judge on a rabbinical court and applying Talmudic law, Jewish law, which is based on the Talmud. So it's applying Jewish law to uh, cases in which litigants come to Basin, and instead of going to secular courts, they'll come to a Jewish court of law, which applies Talmudic law, and find that conflict resolution by means of traditional Jewish law, traditional in, in the sense that it's sourced in the Talmud 2,000 years ago, but of course it's constantly updated and, and you know, based on new circumstances and the, the need of the times. So I, I spent some years uh, as a Dayan, of course, that was an incredible uh, experience. And at the same time, I published different books and different articles, mainly on the subject of Jewish law, uh, a little bit on the subject of Jewish thought. Um, then sometime down the road, I also felt it would be in my best interest for a number of reasons uh, to also branch my education in secular law. So I did a, a degree at Hebrew University in law. Later on, I did a master's. I, I interned at the Supreme Court of Israel. Uh, which was also a, a you know very special and unique experience. And since then, I'm I'm teaching also at Hebrew U. I, I teach law, Jewish law mainly um, at Hebrew U. It's it's an amazing experience because coming from uh, the kind of background uh, Jewish ultra Orthodox Haredi, uh, it's an amazing experience to be teaching students who are coming from all over Israel. These are high, very good quality students, but very little exposure and experience with the religious public. So. The kind of human interaction is always uh, very special and, and very fantastic. Uh, but that's not my main occupation. Uh, I'm, I'm also uh, the head of a Haredi division at the Tikva Fund. I set up a journal called Tarikh Iyun, which is an intellectual journal tailored for the uh, ultra-Orthodox for the Haredi society in Israel. We have an English version. Um, we run programs in all kinds of policy-related fields, and we try to study them from a Torah perspective. What does the Torah say about economic policy, about questions of nationalism, questions of the family, questions of other deep policy-related issues? And otherwise, I am a community rabbi. Uh, I write for dinonline.org, uh, a lot of articles in, in Halacha. Um, and I you know, try to uh, keep myself busy with uh, all of these varied occupations. That sounds like you'd be very busy with many occupations. <laughs> well, always, always time for you, Ari, and it's, it's well, very nice to be on your show. So, you know, thank you for having me on, and and for I'm sure you'll you'll give me a grilling experience. Which but you I didn't, say that as if it didn't take us two years to set this up, <laughs> Ari, because you didn't push hard enough. You know, you, don't, you can't blame me for that. That's that's probably the first time I've heard someone say I didn't push hard enough, and certainly in this case, that would be a gross exaggeration. But I'll keep it in mind for the next time. So. Coming from England, was was it your intention always to stay in Israel? Did you think that that's what your fate would be? and Or did you ever think about you'd go back to England and maybe practice as a rabbi or something else there? Well, that's a good question. You know, when I came to Israel, it was really more uh, instinctive uh, than something which was, you know, carefully thought out. It was, it was I, I have some uh, family uh, in Israel, uh, actually, since I moved to Israel, my parents have also followed suit. So now basically all my family 
is in Israel. But at the time, I had some family in Israel, and it just felt to me to be the more you know, attractive and interesting and appealing option. Uh, but having come to Israel, I, I really deeply fell in love with both with Jerusalem, uh, with Israel, with the yeshiva system that I really became a, a part of and lived the ideal for many, many good years. And as time wore on, the option of going back to England, whether to further my studies or as a rabbinical career, uh, became you know, less and less on the cards, as it were. I became more and more involved in the kind of things that I'm involved with today in Israel over time. I became more enmeshed and more entrenched uh, within the Israeli public. But at the same time, you know, no option is completely off the table. You know, uh, th- there are so many important things to be done, certainly in Israel, but also in the rest of the world. So being in Israel is, is a big advantage. I, I feel that it's a, a tremendous merit and, you know, a, a really tremendous godsend to be able to live in Israel, to be able to make my own contribution, my modest contribution to the Israeli public, both the uh, religious, Haredi and, and the non-religious in whichever way I can. And, and I feel that, you know, there is a certain added value, a special bonus of being able to make that contribution in Israel. At the same time, uh, one, one never knows where HaKadosh Baruch Hu will guide you and will lead you. So, you know, nothing is set in stone. You said that you were studying for, for many years and you said you fell in love. What did you fall in love with about that society? Well, what, what really attracted me the most, I would say, was the totality of the system. Uh, the ability to really throw yourself into the deep end of this, you know, huge lake or, or pool of Torah, of the, you know, the waters of Torah, and to become just completely immersed. You know, during my time in May Yeshiva, you know, I, I barely saw, you know, you saw the light of day through the windows. But other than that, I, you know, I didn't know the street names around the Yeshiva. I, I didn't know my way around anywhere. You know, it, it was like you could be in, in May Yeshiva, whatever you needed was brought to you, both in terms of meals, even dry cleaning, cakes for Shabbos, whatever you needed was brought to the Yeshiva. And you could be so entranced, so so engaged in this kind of full-time, total Torah experience. It, it was just amazing for me. And, and of course, I knew that yeshiva is not a permanent situation. You don't stay in yeshiva for your entire life. But the ideal of a society based around this kind of ideal of Torah study seemed to me to be extremely attractive. And, and you know, certainly as a young person, it was something that really drew me in uh, in a very intense way. And I kind of, you know, made up my mind to, to be a part of this idealized system. And, and I really did, you know, live that kind of uh, model for, for many years. It's interesting because you're someone who ultimately emerged to deal with the wider society at large in a very significant way. So it's, I don't know, surprising, but interesting to hear you say to what degree you really treasured that time of greater insularity. Are those two poles a contradiction to you, or does one uh, invariably create the foundation for the other? Right. It, it, it's a good question. I mean, you said treasured uh, in the past tense, and, and it's certainly I still treasure uh, that time very deeply. But now I see it as, as a phase, uh, meaning I didn't see it as, you know, again, at the time, n- number one, I was young, and number two, I, I didn't know exactly what the future would hold. Uh, and number three, of course, we evolved. Over time, our opinions evolve, and of course, the emphases and the way we allocate our time changes. But uh, certainly, even today, looking back, I would certainly say that those years of insulation, those years of kind of the total 
experience of uh, living the yeshiva world certainly gave me a very, very important, very, very significant foundation for everything that I do today uh, outside of the, strictly speaking, you know, the boundaries of the study hall. The, the Gemara has a, has a discussion, which is greater, Torah study or the actual implementation, the actual realization of the Torah? Is it that the Talmud is greater or the Maaseh is greater? And the, and the Gemara comes up with this very interesting conclusion that the Talmud is greater because it brings towards the Maaseh. Talmud, Godel Talmud, that it brings you to the action. And, and that's a strange conclusion. Just say the action is greater because at the end of the day, the greatness of the Talmud is that it brings you to action. So that means the action is greater, not the uh, study is greater. And I think that the, the, the Talmud might be telling us that if we don't appreciate the greatness of the Talmud itself, of the learning, the study itself, and really treat it as an independent entity, as a kind of detached, separate entity, then we won't also reach the greatness of the action. So I think for me, having those years of detachment, of, of really insularity, isolation even, within the study hall uh, was, was certainly a, a foundational experience and, and also gives me a, a base on which I can really see, try to, again, of course, to the extent that I'm able to, to build, you know, the next floors uh, of the things that, that I try to do today. Well, speaking of, of learning, it seems like you're a lifelong learner in many ways, and you made the choice at some point to transition into secular higher education. Now, for those familiar with the standard yeshiva system in which you were ensconced, that's a, an unusual move, I think. What really inspired that, and why did you feel as a rabbinical judge you wanted to branch out and to become qualified as a secular attorney and, and ultimately go into secular academia studying the law? Right, well, actually, there were a number of, of different factors involved in, in that choice. You're absolutely right that it wasn't a, an easy decision. It was certainly not a standard decision, and it was accompanied by you know, a, lo- a lot of reluctance and a lot of uh, dilemmas uh, at, at many stages uh, along the way. Of course, it was always with consultation with rabbis and mentors and teachers and so on. You know, I was careful to consult with uh, the people whose opinion I treasure. But basically, there were a number of factors. One factor was I did feel that even though I was making uh, an important, in, in my eyes, contribution uh, within the kind of narrow scope of the yeshiva world in which I was living as a rabbinical judge, as an author, uh, as you know, this um, up-and-coming young, bright kind of uh, a rabbinical scholar, uh, but I felt that given broader tools, given a broader uh, educational kind of foundation, I might be able to also branch out and, and make a deeper and perhaps a more original contribution. I, I found myself in an, in an interesting position because I grew up in London, uh, in England, and given my upbringing, this kind of stood me out among my peers in, in the Yeshiva, Israeli Yeshiva world. I also didn't do to live in a very uh, Anglo or American-oriented community. I lived in a very Israeli uh, area and, and community, and, and these were my peers. And of course, my upbringing, my broader education as as a high schooler going through the English uh, high school system, you know, often gave me different perspectives, sometimes even in in Torah study, but certainly in in what was going on in Israel. I felt that perhaps, I I wasn't sure where this would lead me exactly, but I became very aware of deep challenges, uh, challenges 
both in terms of broader Israel and the relationship between the Haredi community and society, the ultra-Orthodox society, and broader Israeli society, which has a lot of friction and tension, and that you know bothered me. Uh, but also challenges within my own Haredi community, my own Haredi society, and and I felt that if I'm going to make a you know any kind of a contribution beyond the boundaries of of the study hall in which I was uh, basically functioning up until then, then having this broader uh, education would be useful, would be important. Um, there were other factors involved. One factor was uh, having a capacity for a stable income. I've I've always, you know, over the years I was the sole breadwinner of the family, and of course, you know, Baruch Hashem, uh, I I was making it. Um, but in order to ensure a certain stability, I thought that this would be useful. And the other thing was that actually, as a rabbinical judge, I have to say, we were very often consulting with legal experts, sometimes receiving conflicting opinions about a certain issue. And all of this was very important, even as a practitioner of Jewish law, because often you have to know, number one, the law of the land, number two, the uh, the, the minhag, the custom, or what's customary uh, in the land. And, and I felt that even as a rabbinical judge, my, my capacity or my potential for excellence in that field would be enhanced by actually getting to know the general uh, law, specifically in Israel, but also general principles of the law. It's interesting you point that out because I was going to ask whether your pursuit of this higher education was more of a means, a bridge to allow you to more credibly reach out to the broader society, or whether it really grew your knowledge base or your wisdom base, and you found perspectives on jurisprudence or on uh, life generally that you hadn't discovered within the walls of the, of the Jewish study hall? Right. I mean, well, this is, this is two things, right? The, the one question is why you choose to do something, and the, and the second is what you actually get from doing it. You know, these are two different questions. I have to say one final uh, consideration that I had uh, before embarking on this journey was, you know, I, I guess a kind of uh, curiosity, meaning, you know, as a 17-year-old in England, this was the kind of expected track, you know, I was pretty much expected to go into academia to go study something. And for a while, I had a university place that I deferred over the years, you know, many times until I just threw in the town and said, you know, just forget about it. But, you know, perhaps I had this kind of lingering sense of, you know, let, let's see what's going on there and let, let's find out. But having been there, have, having done it, uh, I think both elements that you mentioned are true. Um, you know, certainly, it give, you know, the, the credentials are important for anything that you wish to do outside the strict parameters of Torah occupations. And even within the parameters of Torah occupations, you know, having the added credentials can be a certain, a certain bonus. It can also, for some positions or for some elements, it can also be a handicap of sorts, but I, I felt that it was right for me. Uh, but certainly also in terms of thinking, it, it certainly gave me anyway a, a lot of additional tools that, that I find uh, I can apply even in Torah study in terms of being able to define a concept in, in a sharper way, uh, delineating the parameters of certain uh, concepts, certainly in terms of writing, uh, enhanced my writing, which, you know, I was anyway uh, writing quite a lot by the academic experience enhanced and sharpened my writing. And also I was able to really study, you know, th- this wasn't some uh, law school where everything is, uh, all, the, all the choices of what to study are made on your behalf. Uh, there was a lot of flexibility uh, over the course of the degree in terms of what I could study. And I, I put in a lot of hours in Jewish law, 
on Jewish thought. And a lot of the things was, you know, my first kind of exposure to the broad, the, the broader kind of scope of, of research that's being done uh, in areas of Jewish law and thought. And, and that was also, you know, something which gave me a, a certain toolkit, uh, which you don't get in the traditional based madrash. And, you know, some people, of course, are autodenized and they'll do it by themselves. But for me, um, the, the experience was certainly enhancing in that sense also. So were you very unique walking around, uh, assuming you were dressed as like a yeshiva student? Were you unique in your comportment on campus? And what was your interaction like? I think, I, I think it was Menachem Bumbeck I interviewed who told me that he was one of the few outwardly Haredi students on campus there. And now that maybe has changed. But what was your interaction like on the campus? So, yeah, I mean, the answer is certainly yes. I mean, when I, when I began my academic at Hebrew, I think I was actually the only, certainly outwardly, I was the only uh, Haredi person on the campus. This is, uh, you know, Menachem Bamak is a good friend of mine, and he, you know, joined a few years later. But at the time, you know, this is going back to around 2008, there was really nothing at all going on there in terms of uh, Haredi participation in the student body. And I, I really made a point of setting foot only in the full you know, hat and jacket and really representing, as it were, uh, the, the Haredi society from which I come, and I thought it was a, a real opportunity of Kiddush Hashem. Um, but, but it wasn't just about Kiddush Hashem, it was also about getting to know each other. And, you know, for so, so many students, certainly in the law faculty at Hebrew U, which is the best, you know, certainly among the two best law faculties in Israel alongside Tel Aviv, for them, for, for so many of the, student, of the students there, their only previous encounters with Haredi society had been through the media and through, you know, uh, channels that often portray Haredi society in a very negative light and in a very conflictual light uh, with broader Israeli society. So they, they've never met, so to speak, a real specimen before. <laughs> a, a lot of my time there, you know, again, one has to remember, I was an unusual student in, in many senses. I had, you know, five or six children coming in. Uh, I, I wasn't quite the same age. Uh, as, as a regular student, I was supporting my family by doing all kinds of work, and I was a rabbinical judge, and I was doing a lot of things. So uh, I, I wasn't a classic student, and I couldn't attend every course that I would have liked to. But uh, the time that I did spend, I felt, was very, very justified, just in terms of breaking these barriers and creating this human connection. And, and you know, especially in, in studying law, where, you know, virtually every, well, not every course, but in many of the courses, the, the prime examples of interesting law cases, certainly in constitutional law and in other cases, come from uh, cases involving Haredi society. So I could be a real, you know, I, I was a, a very outspoken student in class also. I felt I could bring a kind of fresh perspective, uh, certainly in Jewish law, but also in regular law to the classroom. Uh, the lecturers, the, the, the professors loved it. And I also made some really, really special connections. I have chavrusas, you know, uh, study partners that asked me to study with them just because they got to know me. And, you know, secular people, but they wanted to learn more. They wanted to know more. I have students, you know, a, a number of students who asked me to officiate at their weddings. And, and some of them, you know, coming from a completely secular background and their families, their, their parents were amazed. You know, how come my child is having a, a traditional ceremony? And, and the answer is because the human connection can, can really melt down all of these barriers and all of these issues that exist in Israel between uh, the Orthodox and the ultra-Orthodox and the rest of Israeli society. And I would say, you know, that there are many issues with from people and certainly with Haredim, with ultra-Orthodox people studying in academia, that there are issues and it's a delicate subject. Uh, but one of the 
you know, immense side benefits is this capacity to build these human bridges between the societies and to kind of, you know, it, it's a real healing process in many ways. And I felt it was a real privilege uh, to be able to, to have that. Were there, pre- were there preconceptions that you also shared during this time? Well, maybe to some degree, but not to the same degree as some of my Haredi peers who have never set foot outside of Haredi society. And all of a sudden, you know, they, they suddenly realize that there are values outside there. People are or, or can certainly be uh, upright and, and, and moral and ethical and, and there's wisdom and so on. You know, for me, that was less of an eye-opener because, again, I, I grew up in England. So this wasn't a traumatic experience for me. But nonetheless, you know, I have to say I did spend, you know, a good 15 years in, you know, virtual isolation in my internal society. So there, there were a lot of things that I had to, you know, get used to. Again, some of them challenging, some of them eye-opening, some of them just, you know, interesting and, and a lot of them enjoyable. Um, and, and certainly a lot of those connections that I made, I still keep up with today. And today, as, as a professor, as a teacher uh, at Hebrew U, uh, I try to, you know, carry on the same kind of dynamic that, that, that I had back then. What do you think was most surprising to the people that you encountered? What do you think were the stereotypes that they had about you that you were able to disabuse? Well, you know, for, for starters, uh, the, the very fact that we were able to just hold conversation, to hold a rational, open conversation about topics that were important for all of us was just a real eye-opener for them. Uh, they, they expected, you know, as a Haredi person, they, they didn't expect anything of the sort. You know, they thought that there'd be no speaking, that I would kind of refuse to even engage in any kind of a discourse with them. And if I would, then my arguments would all be based on, you know, religious kind of preconceptions and Torah concepts that you can't really argue with. You know, this is not part of the public space. I was perfectly willing to engage and to discuss and, and to engage in discourse, you know, on, on their terms, as it were. And it was, it was great, you know, uh, also, I was just, a, I guess it was a good student. Uh, I was happy to share my class notes with anybody. And, and you know, I was just like, I guess just being a normal person, you know, for them, this Kaveri person is completely outlandish. He's coming from a different world. You know, what exactly is there under the hat? Uh, you know, Yiddish speaking. And, you know, people also perceive Kaveri society as being one block, one kind of sea of black. And, don't really understand that there's so many different shades and so, such a diversity within Haredi society. So it's all one big unknown. That's not to say that everyone was receptive and friendly. Some were not. But the students or professors? And the students. Um, but the great majority were. The great majority were curious and were very willing and even eager to speak and to engage and to listen. Um, and I, I was very pleasantly surprised by that because, you know, the, the media does tend to present the kind of conflictual side between these communities. And when you get to the kind of personal, you know, one-on-one or one-on-some conversation level, you see that everything, all this melts away and, and you really share a lot of the different issues, albeit from quite different perspectives. So you went from there to intern, it sounds like, at the Israeli Supreme Court. And the Israeli Supreme Court is known, I think, as really a hotbed of judicial activism a very progressive body that is often in great conflict with the government itself and has been criticized by many, certainly in the right-wing sectors of Israeli government, as being a little too powerful, I guess, and too encroaching 
in many different areas. And at the same time, it sounded like your experience at the Supreme Court was a positive one. Did you acknowledge or recognize or encounter those challenges within the court? And what was your overall experience like there as a religious Jew? Well, the question of judicial policy of, uh, you know, whether the court is is more activist or less activist. Number one, it depends a little bit on the specific justice uh, that you're clerking for at the Supreme Court. And, and going in, I, know, I had a lot of dilemmas. I had, you know, one of the greatest dilemmas I had was whether to actually do the internship. Because, you know, while you're studying at university or wherever you're studying, you can still, you know, play the game. You can live in, in all these different worlds at the same time. But once you actually start doing an internship, then you become a full-time, it's a full-time job. So this was a very big dilemma for me, whether to take this on at all, meaning whether to continue on with an internship or not. And, and the kind of the way I resolved this dilemma was to only apply to like two or three justices on the Supreme Court. And that was the only internship I applied for. And I, I thought, okay, if I, if I get in to these two or three justices uh, with whom I'm, I'm really interested to intern, th- then I'll do it. And otherwise, you know, let's go back to uh, colonial or uh, whatever I was doing before. Uh, and and this what happened I, I, with Siata Rishmaya, I, I, I did get accepted. So it was really, you know, uh, justices who I already had a lot of respect for. You know, I had done my research and, and I felt that their, uh, their, their style and, and their uh, attitudes were uh, certainly the type that I could respect and I could identify with. But well, that's not to say that, you know, that if, if I was the justice, I would do everything the same way. But it doesn't have to be that way. You just need this, this mutual respect and the ability to work together. Uh, the, the court, per se, is an activist court, that's true. But, you know, as an intern, you don't come in with, come, you come in with your head down a bit. You don't come in with, with your head up and, hey, I'm going to break or change the system. That's the system. And let, let's see, you know, my attitude coming in was, you know, let's see what the system is. You know, let's, let's really get a feel of how this works from the inside, and let's see what, what, what I could do there. You know, it was just a challenge for me to go in uh, with my background, which, which obviously was quite different from the average intern's background, and, and let's see what kind of an impact I can make, even in a very modest way, uh, but also perhaps, you know, to think about uh, shaping or molding uh, a direction, a vector for the future afterwards. You know, let's see what can be done in this obviously very influential, uh, very dominant element within Israeli society, within Israeli politics. So that, that was a challenge for me going in. And the experience really was a, a, a very, very positive experience. You know, first of all, you know, the, the people that you meet there are obviously very special people, whether you endorse their policies or their judicial attitudes, you know, that the people are very special. They were very welcoming, uh, all the justices, and I, I really was able to forge, you know, many special and close relationships with, with a number of justices. And the nature of the work, certainly with the justice who I clerked for, your handle, um, the, the nature of the work was also very, very close, meaning I was really writing, you were, you're able to write decisions on your own to really ha- get this really unique, a very special experience, uh, and then going over them together with him and, you know, pointing out where you could have written differently, you could have written better, uh, a lot of responsibility. And, you know, it's, it's a year that I, I look back on with, uh, obviously, with a sense of nostalgia. Uh, and, and also with a sense of achievement. It was, a, it, was, it was a very special year. What do you feel like you contributed? You said you saw it as a challenge. Do you feel like you were able to bring something different, a unique flavor to the place? Uh, yes, but in a modest way. You know, you're an intern, you're not a justice. So you have to know your place. 
And, you know, I, I think that the decisions that I was able to write, I also became a kind of general consultant for all of the justices in, in Jewish law. Many of them like to, you know, to pepper their decisions with elements from uh, the tradition from the Jewish law. I'm not saying that these elements uh, make a real significant uh, impact on, on their decisions, but it's something which justices like to do. And, you know, being an expert in Jewish law gave me a kind of uh, in to make this contribution of the justices a little bit better, a little, uh, a little more knowledgeable and more enhanced. So I, I was happy to play that role. You know, at, at the same time, it's, it's uh, you know, I'm, I'm not saying there was no conflict. Uh, I remember there was one time in 2014, there was like this very big demonstration uh, organized by Haredi society because of some issue with the Supreme Court. So the demonstration was really, you know, against or at least taking issue with the Supreme Court. And at the time I was clerking for the Supreme Court and came out of the building together with uh, my peers. And, you know, they were all going out there kind of out of curiosity. But I, I was going out there as a Haredi person and identifying to some degree with all the Haredi that were there demonstrating. And it was kind of a, a, a moment that I had to ask myself, you know, which side am I belonging to? You know, I'm on the one hand, you know, blending into this Haredi demonstration, but I've just come out of the Supreme Court where I'm clerking. So it was just a funny moment. But, uh, you know, certainly I think, I, I was able to make some contribution and, and you know, who knows where uh, the, the future might lie in this sense also, you know, one, one never knows. It's interesting that you hear a lot of talk now about there being some kind of a burgeoning interest within the secular elite culture in Israel, in Judaism. You know, you've heard uh, Ruth Calderon creating a, a study initiative for secular Israelis to explore Judaism as a Knesset member. Did you experience that in the Supreme Court? Did you find even justices or people right under them interested not just in, you know, dressing up their judicial uh, writings, but actually in their personal lives in pursuing some kind of Jewish study? And and were they genuinely curious for their own sake? Well, that's a very personal uh, issue. Um, You know, certainly in, in Israel, broadly read, there is a kind of movement within Israel toward an interest, an engagement, I would say, with the sources, with the texts of the tradition. I'm not saying that people are necessarily becoming from, uh, but certainly they're beginning to engage, or not, not all of them, of course, but there's a movement towards a greater engagement, a greater interest, a greater readiness to really study, to learn, to engage. And, and that's obviously, I think, a, a very big positive. Um, you know, generally, Israeli society is in flux. All parts of Israeli society are in motion, are in flagship. If you look at the secular uh, public in Israel, well, you know, we, we used to have the, the kibbutz movement and then, then we had the peace movement and, you know, the kibbutz movement fizzled out. The peace movement certainly isn't today uh, what it was 20 years ago. Uh, you know, there's a lot of disillusionment on, on that front. And, and people are looking back towards their own roots and, and finding a, a, a lot of content there, for, you know, that they can really be in conversation with. and. I certainly saw that in the Supreme Court among some of the people I was working with. Uh, I can't say it was something which was very felt uh, or, or something which you could really tangibly sense. Uh, you know, people were very busy with uh, workloads. Uh, you know, there's an incredible workload in the Supreme Court uh, of Israel. You know, you guys in the United States, you know, the court here is, I don't know, 70 or so cases a year in, in, at the Supreme Court. I think, you know, we were doing, you know, uh, the last numbers that we had at the end of the year was like 11,000 or something, you know. How many? 11,000? 
Yeah, you know, something like that. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a different kind of workload. Um, it's a different system. Obviously, you can't compare the system, but it's it's a huge workload. And so both the justices and the clerks are, are very, very busy with, you know, discharging their, their basic duties of, of work. So we, we didn't have a lot of spare time to engage in, you know, deep theological conversation. But there were some, uh, and, and certainly a lot of people expressed, you know, a deep interest. It was also nice for me to see just a simple tradition, you know, this was the first time that I had really forayed into a proper place of work uh, outside of Haredi society. You know, I'd been in, at Hebrew U, but, you know, only as an occasional guest to go, you know, go into lectures, speak to people. But here I was, you know, going through a year in a non-religious or, you know, a, a regular Israeli workplace. And it was nice to see just the respect for tradition, you know, for Hanukkah, for Pesach, for other uh, occasions during the year that, you know, that even, even just to see non-Orthodox uh, Israelis and, and uh, the respect that the great majority of them showed uh, for tradition was also something for me which was a very uh, positive experience. So it sounds like you went from here not into a law career, but more into the realm of politics or rather the study of politics, perhaps would be a better way to describe it, becoming the uh, director of a division of the Tikva Fund and beginning a journal uh, a thought journal, think tank type of a profession. What was that decision like and how did it materialize? Well, I, I wouldn't call this quite the study of politics. It's more a sense of the way I see it anyway. It's, it's of course, it's a study because we're always studying, we're always learning. Uh, but, but it's also about ideas and about how ideas make an impact on a society and actually make a difference. And that's what I feel I'm doing with Tikva. You know, even while I was studying at university and, and, and while I was at the Supreme Court, I really became involved on a certain level in, you know, what, what you might call social activism, uh, not, not in the sense of a radical activist doing uh, revolutionary activism, but, you know, set, setting up schools, setting up pre-academic uh, academies. Um, I, I, you know, I was involved in, in a number of initiatives and, and programs Within Haredi society, people began to see me as a kind of address to which to go to for someone who had grounding in kind of both worlds, you know, both in the Haredi world, of course, and in the non-Haredi world, at least by, by dint of education and, and experience. And, and this really brought me into a lot of different fascinating projects, both involving Torah study on the one hand, involving non-Torah study on the other hand, involving workplace issues of Haredi society. And I'd been on a TIFA program as part of my uh, university experience. That, that was a whole decision in itself because two of my professors said, you know, you've got to go to a, to a TIFA program. Can you so, explain what TIFA is, by the way? Yeah, the TIFA Fund is a philanthropic organization that believes in ideas. It, it believes in ideas and it believes in the effect that ideas can have on a society. And this is an organization that really expands conservative ideas multi-conservative uh, policy ideals and, and really tries to merge them or to integrate them within uh, a Jewish framework, a Jewish social framework. So it's about the study of those ideas and it's about how those ideas can really impact, can really make a difference within Jewish society in, in the United States, within Jewish American society and in Israel, for Israel broadly, because you know most of Israel is, is Jewish. So TikTok has today a big and prominent Israel office it has its home office based in New York, and it runs a lot of different programs. It has in, in, in America, it has 
a program for high schoolers, for students, for more experienced professionals. It has fellows programs. It has, you know, a lot of things going on, maybe in education and adult education, again, uh, in the realm of ideas and policy-related uh, ideas. And it also has a number of journals. And, and a similar kind of framework is true uh, of Israel. And uh, we just had our first Israeli conservatism conference that I participated in. It was a tremendous success. And, and there's a lot of thirst. Uh, within Israel for such an organization or for such a think tank because all of these kind of political ideas are, are very new to Israel. Israel doesn't have a history, a tradition of, you know, conservative versus liberal, you know, heavy hitters, uh, big intellectual institutions. So this is uh, very exciting to be a part of this in Israel. In any case, as a student, I was strongly recommended by my professors to attend this Tikva seminar. It was a summer seminar for something like two and a half, three weeks in the summer. For me, it was, it was like crazy to even think about this. You know, I had six kids at home, this was their vacation time. Uh, so for me, it was like, you know, to leave my wife and children and, you know, to, to go on this trip to, to the United States, you know, one of my first ever trips to America. Uh, but, you know, I said, why not? Let's apply, see if I get in, and then we'll make the decision. Uh, I applied in the beginning. I was like, you know, turned down flat. They said, you, you must be applying to the wrong program, you know? <laughs> You know, but, but I said, listen, I, I'm an undergraduate student. I classify, you know, I fit all the criteria that you're asking for. So just put my application through and let's see what they say. So the secretary put my application through. Ultimately, I was accepted. And for some reason, difficult to explain why, but for some reason, my, my wife and myself made the decision that, you know, let's do it. It was really part of, I guess, the, the kind of ideal that I was living at the time was an ideal of participation in these kind of broader Jewish frameworks and making my impact, projecting my voice, making the connections. Uh, that's what I'd really been doing in Hebrew Union. I felt that this was a, an opportunity to extend that to a kind of different level. Uh, and, it, and it was a fantastic experience. I don't have time to you know, speak about everything that happened there, but uh, just to say briefly, when I finished my internship, then Tinkler kind of approached me and, and said, uh, I remember Eric Cohen, he's the CEO of the Tinkler Fund. And you know, his, his basic pitch was, you know, why waste your time being an attorney? You know, why waste your time practicing law? Come work for us and, and make us an offer. Give us an idea. We understand that Haredi society is a big, significant, important part of Israeli society. We also understand that it's a pretty isolated community. They're not getting involved in the conversation of ideas and policy issues in Israel. Give us an idea. What would you do? You know, you know what we do. You've been to us. You know a little bit about us. How would you translate this for Haredi society? So I came up, I think, with three proposals. Uh, they took one of them, and then the rest is history. You know, for two years or even a little bit longer, I've now been with uh, with the Tikva Fund. What's the overlap, if any, between what you're doing and that which your uh, your remote neighbor Eli Pillay is doing at the Institute for Haredi Affairs? Right. Well, first of all, Eli and I have become you know very close friends. Uh, I even made a, a, a wonderful shidduch of my sister-in-law with Eli Pele's son. So we no became family. Yeah, we became family that way. And, you know, Eli Pele's Research Institute is about making policy, meaning Eli Pele wants to influence government policy by putting out these research papers, research documents, making a case for one policy or another, and getting it out there. And he's doing a wonderful job at that. It's certainly an important part of this kind of developing uh, Haredi world, the, the development of, of policy making, and certainly I'm, I'm all for that. 
Well, what we do is, is more in terms of the underlying ideas, having people being able to join the conversation. First of all, the broader conversation in Israel about, let's say, economics or, or about religion and states or about whatever it is. People need to have the toolkit, the language to be able to converse within that conversation. And, and so we bring people in. We have long seminar programs over the course of several months. We really do you know, deep, high-level study involving lectures, involving discussions, and, and we have alumni programs, and we have a real learning go, going on. We have real study. And beyond that, there's also um, just enabling the internal conversation within Haredi society, uh, enabling deep thought about issues that are crucial internally for Haredi society itself. That's mainly what I do in the context of the journal that we established. It's bringing up issues that everyone knows that these issues exist. Everyone knows that these are deep, important, crucial issues for Haredi society, but they're often discussed only in terms of slogans or pieces penned by journalists here and there. And then this is an attempt to really bring that up a few notches to a really high level of discourse, of conversation. And, and again, it's, it's about a language. It's about promoting uh, ideas. It's about policy considerations, both internally and externally. And it's really about bringing ideas to the surface and, and having them promoted, uh, discussed on a very you know, high level and, and impressive platform. Uh, the third wing of what we do is, is to actually try to merge those ideas with real-life institutions, with real-life projects. Because a lot of our alumni, as well as people from outside, they get the ideas, they understand the principles, and then they say, hey, I've got a real project. I've got a real idea of how to bring this newly found knowledge to light in an applied way and to realize it in a real-life endeavor. And, and we're happy to also provide whatever means we can, whether it's in terms of, of the infrastructures, whether it's in terms of seed money, to try to get those things going. So, you know, there's a lot of different arms to this division that, that I, I'm trying to run within Tikva. And, and I think, you know, we're doing wonderful things. Any uh, police policy-making institute is, is also, you know, making real uh, inroads. And there, there are not many of us in, in this field, so there's plenty of room for, you know, important actors. Menachem Bambach, you mentioned before, in the educational field uh, is doing remarkable work, and there are others. So, you know, it's, it's a land that hasn't been deeply plowed. There's a lot of scope for a lot of work to be done here. Tikva is a conservative think tank. Does that mean that your sense is that Judaism itself conforms to a particular political ideology or is there space within what you're doing to identify where Judaism may diverge from classical conservative political thought? Well, you know, if you speak about political thought in general and conservative political thought in particular, of course, there are many aspects to that. Certainly, I'm not into missionizing and I don't have any you know, aspirations of converting uh, all of my, you know, Haredi and non-Haredi peers and neighbors and colleagues to conservative ideologies. Uh, at the same time, I think that, you know, broadly read, it's a good shidduch, certainly in, in my own work, in terms of working with, with Haredi society, the conservative disposition, the conservative mindset is certainly something which most uh, Haredi people strongly identify with. I mean, in terms of their self-identification, this is a very, very conservative group. That doesn't mean that everything they do and everything they believe in tallies with uh, conservative political thoughts and a lot of the issues 
haven't been thrashed out in a deep way within Saudi society. So I would say that it requires thought. The journal that we set up is called Tarikhiyun, which means requires thought, requires investigation. And we want people to think about it. Uh, I don't hide uh, at all behind any kind of veil, uh, you know, our conservative dispositions and inclinations. I don't hide them uh, at all. But I think that if we think about the, the basic kind of conservative incantation, if you want, that believes in preserving uh, what's good, the, the good that we've received from our forebears, from our ancestors, uh, while at the same time believing in the, the capacity for improvement, for gradual change. I think that's a very, very good description of uh, what Jewish society, again, broadly read, or I would say Orthodox Jewish society, halacha, let's say, uh, or a traditional society generally, how it sees itself, how it defines itself. And uh, for Haredi society, that's certainly true. I, I, I don't side with the revolutionaries and I have friends who are this way inclined to believe that, you know, we need to really take things apart and rebuild society in, in a different way. Uh, I, I don't think that's right. And I, I don't think, number one, I don't think that's right. Generally speaking, I don't think it's healthy. I don't think a Haredi spring would do anybody any good. You know, certainly no better than the Arabs and what's good for the Arabs. And if, if we really want to make a impact for the better, then I think the conservative mindset is certainly a good starting point. Um, and that's even before we discuss specific individual policies relating to uh, whatever it is, family, morality, economics, feminism, whatever you want. And of course, each one uh, needs to be discussed and, and is discussed uh, individually in, in the programs that we run. We discuss all of these issues and we just open them up. A lot of Haredi people are coming in from a background where they haven't delved into these issues in, in a deep way. So. I'm not just, you know, presenting them with one side of the argument. We, uh, we, we have our dispositions, but we also want people to think and, and to make up their own minds. And, and, you know, it's a wonderful opportunity. I'm only asking this because it was in the news now and very recently. And then I'll close with a few broader questions. Uh, recently, there was a whole backlash when a politician uh, on the right wing, Betsal Smatrich, said he would want to see the, the Jewish state run along Jewish legal lines, along uh, essentially, I guess, perhaps a theocracy, we could call it. Uh, and there was great pushback, and he was told he would not be given a, a portfolio as a justice minister because of that. How do you see that from your perch as a person who's deeply engrossed in both the religious legal institutions and also the secular legal institutions of the land of Israel? Uh, well, there's a lot to be said about this and a lot to unpack. And, and you know, I, I didn't think we'd be able to do this issue justice in the story. 30 seconds you have for it. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you the blurb. The blurb is that, you know, whatever he meant to say, this was not a very conservative statement. The concept of Jewish law for a, a modern state, of course, has not been uh, well developed and needs a lot, a lot of thought and development. I think that there's a real imperative to do that. I think it's important to develop it. When already classic members were asked, how will you run the country when you'll be in the majority? Their answer was, well, we'll never be a majority. And, and obviously they were just getting out, avoiding the question because they didn't know. And I think that this is a real imperative of trying to think about what we would do. How do we believe uh, that, that a state should be run based on Jewish ideas, Jewish ideals, uh, Jewish morality, and of course, Jewish law? But certainly to speak about Smotrich did going, as it were, back to the days of David and King Solomon, that's very, very anachronistic. 
opportunistic and these people are already up in arms, you're going to be applying the, the death penalty to people who violate Shabbat and things like that. And of course, we weren't, of course, that such a thing isn't, isn't on the cards in, in, in any sense. But I think before we even begin to discuss the conceptual framework of, of a Hanafi or whatever that might mean, um, there needs to be a lot, a lot of internal development of, of those ideas. It just hasn't been done yet. Even in religious courts, I can say, we're often very convenient, it's expedient for the religious courts to rely on secular law, for example, employment law. Well, what would employment law look like if it was up to us, if it was up to rabbinical judges to determine modern-day employment law? Um, would we just copy things out of the uh, law book of secular law, or would we actually try to make something original, something of our own, and how would it look? I haven't seen anybody that, that tries to, to engage in these issues, and I think it's very important to do so. But before we do so, certainly such statements, you know, such sweeping and, and uh, radical kind of statements are, are not healthy. And I don't think he meant them anyway. He was speaking whatever. Uh, you know, I, I'm not going to now, uh, you know, try to uh, defend Smartrace. That's not what we're here for. But I don't think that's what he meant. And it was taken in a way that he didn't mean it. And, and obviously his political uh, rivals and opponents made uh, the most out of whatever he meant. Two final uh, philosophical or theoretical questions, and then one about you, and we'll close. Answer in the order that you choose, but you mentioned some of the internal challenges within the Haredi community, particularly in Israel. And I would imagine whether those are economic challenges or just general demographic challenges, and anyone familiar with the sector understands that there are concerns there that need to be addressed. So my first question is, is how do you see that society evolving as it moves closer and closer towards being that potential eventual majority, if not very significant minority in the next 20 to 50 years? And also, given what you've experienced, what you've seen in your different stops along the way, is there hope for healing some of the really pronounced rifts in Israeli society? And if there is hope, what gives you that, that sense of optimism? Well, I guess as a general statement, I, w- I would say that, you know, the Vilna Goyen has a interpretation on a Pasuk in Mishle. The, the, the Pasuk in Mishle says, the way of somebody who is a maskil, the way of somebody who understands is up. The man saw Michel Mata in order that he should be able to avoid, to evade falling down and this is often interpreted in a very personal way, that as an individual, if you want to avoid falling down, then you have to always be climbing up. You have to be on the rise. If you're not on the rise in, in terms of personal growth, in terms of personal refinement, then you'll find yourself falling down. As it were, there's no neutral situation of the, of the human condition. Either you're going up, and if not, then, then you're going down. But I think the same is true uh, in, in the same sense for a society. A society has to be changing. It has to be going up. And if it stagnates, if it doesn't change, then by definition, it will be going down. This is a little bit Burkean in a certain sense. Right? You, you have to be improving just to conserve. You won't be able to preserve the good within your society if you don't constantly improve. And, and of course, that's true for any society and for Haredi society too. And as circumstances change, then some of the ideals that Haredi society lived and, and that were appropriate for the small community of six, seven hundred families, whatever it was, 
at inception become really challenging when you become a you know a million strong uh, society and a very significant part of modern day Israel, which is you know a small eight million people country. You know this isn't Amish in the United States. You know this isn't some small community that we can just ignore. Uh, it's a really significant block within Israeli society, and this raises you know real challenges both internally for Haredi society. Um, those challenges can be expressed in terms of poverty. They can be expressed in terms of self-fulfillment within a narrow uh, range of options. They can be expressed uh, in, in terms of different institutional challenges, whether uh, educational or non-educational, um, in terms of geography, in terms of communities. You know, th- th- there are many things going on, and a lot of these things uh, are in flux. And they can also be expressed in terms of the attitude toward broader Israel, because if in the past, the general attitude that Haredi society presents, certainly that Haredi children grow up with, is an attitude of them and us. And and of course, the them and us attitude is very central to the isolationist tendency, to the isolationist ideal uh, that Haredi society lives in. You know, the Haredi society uh, really continues on the kind of state of emergency that we went into in the enlightenment days of, of Europe in order to kind of isolate or segregate from the winds of change that swept across Europe. And as a defense mechanism, this state of emergency involves strong isolation from non-Karedi, from secular society, both in terms of ideas and, and values, and of course, in terms of culture and, and ways of life. Uh, and the them and us attitude, the them and us, the articulation of, of the barriers and the differences is, of course, almost essential to enable or to strengthen that isolationist tendency. At the same time, as Haredi society grows, then there are many things that become us and us because, um, you know, if we don't think together about a lot of the issues facing broader Israel, then Haredi society will, will, will also suffer the consequences. And the idea of a civic responsibility, a responsibility beyond the personal and the communal, but even the civic responsibility, is an idea that's slowly taking root and slowly uh, growing uh, even within the mainstream enclaves of Haredi society. We'll see how that plays out concerning your second question, that there are a lot of issues uh, that are yet to be resolved over here. Um, that There are things that, that have been changing and, and, and evolving uh, within Haredi society, such as employment rates and, and participation in the workforce, uh, participation in, in higher education, of course. All of these things are real challenges internally. How do you preserve all that's good and pure and worthy within Haredi society while navigating the challenges of being in a secular environment as part of the general workforce, as studying higher education? All of these things are real challenges that need, you know, real guidance and real thought and cooperation with rabbinic leaders and so on. You know, there's, there's a lot to be done here. Uh, and there are some areas that are still deeply challenging. Of course, one of the major challenges is the army challenge that came to prominence in the recent elections and, and actually brought down the almost formed coalition that in the end didn't materialize and we'll see what happens in the, ne- in the next election. That's a deep moral issue. I mean, the, the moral claim of non-Haredi society is a strong claim. It can't just be ignored, you know, uh, that the claim that the non-Haredi mother has to spend sleepless nights worrying about her son in a campaign or, or not in a campaign being in the army is, is often a dangerous occupation, whatever you're doing, uh, while the Haredi mother is, is happy in, in, in the knowledge that her son is safe and sound at home or in yeshiva. 
or wherever he is. On the other hand, from the Haredi perspective, the army is also a deeply challenging issue. It's perceived as a real threat to uh, the Haredi way of life on many levels. I'm not going to get into the issue because it's a deep uh, issue. But you know, beyond the specific issues, you know, that there are also the the general social issues. And and you know, my belief in in those in that sense is that, like I mentioned before, the human connection is really key to breaking down these boundaries, to breaking down these divisions. And the more that Haredi society will be inter- integrated in a healthy way, in a way that they'll be able to preserve their Haredi identity and values, but still be there as a part of broad Israeli society, then the less the friction will be, the less the tension will, will be, the more we'll learn to appreciate one another and, and to live with one another, in, in a, not just in, in terms of a peaceful coexistence. It has to be much more than that because Israel as the nation state of the Jewish people, in order to achieve its aims, needs to have the Haredim on board just to achieve its basic purpose as the nation state of the Jewish people. It needs much more than peaceful coexistence, need real cooperation. Um, but I, I'm optimistic and obviously need people to do good things. But Mitrashem, you know, that there'll be many of those and there are many of those. And I'm hopeful towards the future. As a final personal question, Yoshua Pfeffer is an iconoclast, a trailblazer, both, neither. What do you think your story says for others who might be witnessing it, maybe coming up behind you? Well, that's an interesting one to finish with. I'm, I'm the last to uh, classify myself in, in one way or another, and I'll be happy if uh, you'll ask other people how they would like to find out. Uh, what I do and and and, and you know, how they see it. I think that would be the distribution list. I'll send out the poll. Yeah, I'd, I'd be interested if if you can do that. That would be fascinating for me. Certainly, in my own self perception, I, I didn't see myself as a, as a trailblazer in, in in any sense. What I try to do in a, in a modest way is to understand the kind of movement that society, you know, Haredi society specifically, Israeli society generally, Jewish society. To understand and to perceive some of the movements, some of the dynamic that's going on within those societies, you know, first and foremost in my own uh, community, but but also beyond that, and and just to to think about how to better that, how to to be able to improve, how to be able to dovetail with that dynamic, which is anyway taking place, and just how to try to to make it as best as it can be. And of course, in my own you know narrow area that I'm able to have even a small influence in. I try to choose my battles carefully and to choose areas and scope of the influence that I can have in, in a measured way. And, and I believe that that's really the way forward. Uh, in, in terms of my being an, an example to others, I, I certainly try, meaning I, I, I try to, to maintain those values that I fell in love with, as I mentioned before, uh, coming into study in Israel in Kiva and, and to, really, to really preserve all that really is good and pure and, and beautiful. And I, I'm deeply, deeply grateful and deeply appreciative of the opportunity I have to bring up my own family, my own children, as a part of uh, Haredi society in Israel. I think that Haredi society has a huge amount, huge volume of things going for it. And, and I think it's, it's a privilege to be able to, uh, to live and to bring up children in such a, an environment. At the same time, I'm also involved in a range of, of initiatives and projects and endeavors that, that do involve a certain engagement with broader societies, with broader Israel or with, with non-Haredi ideas. In Israel, we, we do need examples of people who are able to 
have this broader engagement while at the same time preserving their commitment to those values, to the Torah values, to, to the values that are broadly representative of, of what it means to be a God-fearing and a, a, a Haredi Jew. And, and you know, I, I do my best to be a representative in that sense. And, you know, if, if I can be an example to others, then Yehezus Hare, that, that should be my compensation, my reward. But certainly I see myself as one of, of many who are trying to work in positive directions. And it's not just one direction, many uh, within and outside of society in which we live. And, um, you know, trying to do the, the, the good and just. And that's what, you know, I, I hope and I try and my best that should animate me. And the, the rest, I'll, I'll give up to, you know, the, the Siyata Vishnaya and, and the good people around me who uh, try to assist and try to help and, and to really try to make it as good as they can be. Well, we've been waiting for a couple years for this conversation, but I think we made up for it with some, uh, some extra time here. Tell people where can the English-speaking public learn more about your work, read your journal, maybe hear any classes. I don't know if your classes at Hebrew, you are recorded. Like where can people access the various portals of your influence and engagement? Sure. So Hebrew U in the meantime is all, is all Hebrew. So that, that's not for the English speaking audience, but we do have an, an English version of Tzarek Ian. Uh, I think it's a wonderful journal. It's a journal which is, it's by Haredim for Haredim. So it's an internal Haredim conversation that's going on there. But it's written in decent Hebrew, and the translation, I, I hope, is, is fairly decent, so it's decent English. Um, and it's a real portal, it's a real reflection of the kind of conversation that's taking place internally. I think it's fascinating reading whichever society and community you might belong to. There are you know, wonderful articles there. Unfortunately, the English version is only a small reflection of everything that's there in the Hebrew version, but still, it's a good place to start. And otherwise, I have you know, a range of, of articles uh, online. My halachic work is online on the DIN online website. It's a halachic resource, a wonderful halachic resource. I used to do all of the questions and answers there, as well as the articles. Today I do the articles there, but there are many hundreds of articles uh, that I have written there on different halachic topics. It's a real a wonderful resource. And I also have a, you know, a range of, of articles published in different publications in English. You know, I, I have an online presence, so it's easy to search for uh, look out for my name and many of the things I do have an online presence for better and for worse. There's nothing not you can't really hide nowadays. Not, that's the way. Well, you could try, but it's but it's definitely hard to do that. And well, this podcast is is going to be one more thing that's up there. In the there we go. This this is the one that will tip the scales. Just you, you, you never know what will, what will happen next. But uh, absolutely, <laughs> Ari, thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you. Yeshua Pfeffer, rabbi, legal scholar, author, much more. I put the rabbi first this time for you. Thank you so thank much you, for joining I, us. I appreciate that very much. Thank you. I, I look forward to the next time. You should do it before, you know, within the next couple, two, three years. Let's get together again. Sounds good to me. Thank you. All right. Take care. All the best for now. Bye-bye. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.